This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. It is Passion Tide, and I pray your Holy Week is a blessed one. Here the red buds are beginning to bloom, and just behind them are the dogwood blossoms. Dogwood season in the bluegrass is probably its prettiest time. Soon the horses will run at Keeneland. Certainly you know of my appreciation for G.K. Chesterton. I was able to acquire what is now a treasured volume in my library, a copy of Chesterton's 1928 short story, The Sword of Wood. It is a fine, limited letterpress book, another interest of mine, handset and printed in an edition of only 530 copies. But even more special is that it is signed by G.K. Chesterton. I will value it as more than a book, but as a relic. Have you considered traveling with us to Salzburg or Bavaria this summer? There is still time and space for you. We would love to have you make the trip. The groups are small, only a half dozen guests. The meals and discussions are grand, all while surrounded by the beauty of old Europe, both natural and man-made. Email me at culturaldebrispodcast at gmail.com for more information. Do you enjoy this podcast? Do you even look forward to it? I would love it if you would consider supporting the podcast through Patreon. It helps keep the lights on here at Cultural Debris HQ. Just hop over to patreon.com slash culturaldebris and you will have instructions there on how to help. My poem is from G.K. Chesterton, The Donkey. When fishes flew and forests walked and figs grew up on thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born. With monstrous head and sickening cry and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody of all four-footed things. The tattered outlaw of the earth of ancient crooked will Starve, scourge, deride me. I am dumb. I keep my secret still. Fools, for I also had my hour, one far fierce hour and sweet. There was a shout about my ears and palms before my feet. My guest is Catherine Ware editor of the new Wade annotated edition of The Man Born to be King by Dorothy L. Sayers, which is published by IVP. We discuss Sayers' challenges in realizing her vision for the work, the secretary who tried to change it, and Sayers' Trinitarian understanding of the creative process, plus her friendship with C.S. Lewis. We also may have your soundtrack for Holy Week, so hold on to the end. Join me as I talk with Catherine Ware. Catherine Ware, welcome to Cultural Debris. 
Thank you very much. It's great to have you on. Thanks. It's great to great to talk to you. So you are you are uh, speaking to us from the great white north of uh, the Twin Cities. How are how are things up there right now? Good. Plenty of snow. As much snow as you'd want, <laughs> or yeah, or well, not want. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Um, but it's, uh, I mean, I, I love that we have all four seasons and it's a great place to be. We have had a, a particularly mild winter so far. It's one of those probably knock on wood moments. We, uh, right at Christmas time, we had a really nasty, like sub-zero freeze that was, you know, burst people's pipes and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But since then, it's been, it's been pretty um pretty mild and my my bulbs are starting to pop out of the yard so it's uh oh, i know yeah I've got, cro- I've, I've got a few early crocuses coming up so oh uh, now i'm jealous uh well you know <laughs> i mean but you've got all the snow so i mean right we, we're we're kind of snowed until you know i don't know april so i've got a little ways to go yeah to to uh to each his own i suppose <laughs> but uh but i'm glad that you have uh you have been willing, despite all the snow, to, to to speak to us today. You have a new a new book out. Uh, you're editor of a new edition of The Man Born to Be King by Dorothy L. Sayers. So congratulations right. on that. Thank you very much. How did you become associated with this project? Well, um, I did my PhD on The Man Born to Be King. Um, and so I, I did my PhD at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And so I I selected these plays to write on and I, I just really love them. I mean, there's a lot that I really love favorite lines, but there's also some quirky bits, things that are related to Sayer's own time. There's just so much to dig into. And so I was able to do that as part of my PhD. Um, and I focused on how she used scripture and then how she developed theology throughout the plays. So a lot to write on. But then, well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And through that, then I thought, well, what I wish existed was a book that had, for instance, all the Bible references right handy for the readers. And then I'm just finding so many other good things. There should be a version where this is all there. So that's how this idea came about. You studied at St. Andrews. My old boss, Russell Kirk, uh, got his doctorate at St. Andrews. Uh, So uh, long, long, long ago. Um, So uh, I, Personally, I've never gotten a chance to visit, but it looks like it's a lovely place. Um, but it, it seems sure to produce uh, seems to produce quality scholars. So we're, um, we're glad that you did this project. So, so what what drew you to these plays and to Dorothy L. Sayers to begin with? Why did you decide this is what I want to spend such a long period of time studying? Which is what happens when you do a, a dissertation. It sure is. And I guess it's been longer than I even imagined when I started. Um, I first read the plays when I was in graduate school at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, I just picked the plays off a list for a book review. And because my undergraduate degree is in theater, I thought, oh, plays, that'll be great. So I picked those up, read them and wrote a short paper on it. And, um, and then that was my introduction to Sayers. So I mean, I, Sayers is so fun. She has so many different genres that she writes in. Um, and so some people get to know her through different ways, you know, through her murder mysteries, through her work on Dante, 
um, a lot of people today who are into classical education know her maybe even solely through her essay, The Lost Tools of Learning, which is very popular in those circles. Um, she also wrote plays at state for the stage, but also radio plays like these. She has a lot of awesome essays about work and about women. Um, so there's just so much to explore. So that's when I started exploring. Um, and she remained a favorite of mine. When, when I was teaching undergraduate theology um, about 10 years ago, I uh, had a class that was teaching Christology and Soteriology, which is the study of salvation. Um, and so, but particularly for those who were majoring in an art form or who were an artist. So they were majoring in English or music. Um, and so they would be in my specific section of this theology class. And so then I would bring in all these artsy things into the class. So I remembered these plays, of course, and I thought, oh, that'd be perfect. So I always left one class period each semester where we would read one of the plays and then discuss it. How is Sayers developing a theology of who Christ is through these scenes that we've read? Um, and when I thought about going back to get a PhD, I, I actually had originally planned to do a PhD in patristics. And then I, I took more Greek to, to just keep digging into ancient Greek because I had taken biblical Greek, but I needed more ancient Greek. And um, I just felt like I'm never going to really love Greek. So I had to kind of <laughs> give up this dream um, of a PhD in patristics. But then I thought, okay, well, if I, I wish that I could do like a creative patristics kind of, kind of thing. So that eventually led me to looking at what I was teaching what were the things I was using to teach? And maybe there was something there. So that's when I thought about these plays. And so I just did a little survey, you know, did a little research. What What is there out there? And there really just wasn't much out there. There was a lot of mention of the plays by her biographers, but there wasn't even a, a single, you know, scholarly article, much less a book on the plays themselves. So I thought, ooh, there's an opening there. Was was this play or were the plays? I guess it's it's a mm -hmm. it's a cycle of plays. That's were right. the were the plays uh, in print uh, before this? Had they fallen out of print when before this came out? Well, they yeah. So they were originally uh, published in 1943, and then they have been kind of in and out of print since then. Um, so there have been a number of editions, both in the UK and in the US. Um, they are the last. I'm trying to think that there is currently. Before this edition, I should say, um, there has been a kind of print-on-demand version mm, that's published yeah. by a classical educator um, publisher uh, because it does get studied in classical schools. Um, but I have to say it's not particularly well edited. And uh, it also, you know, just the kind of care that comes around with a larger publishing house wasn't just wasn't there in terms of promotion, that kind of thing. So it seemed like the... Uh, the, the field was wide open for a new edition. And then, of course, now um, to have it as a Wade annotated edition. So this is the first one like this that has any um, explanations, that has the Bible references. Um, and I've written an introduction to each of the 12 plays. And so that gives readers clues about different themes, different background things that were happening while she was writing. Um, and so it just... It's chock full of all kinds of stuff. I like to think of it as like the backstage tour of the radio right, plays. Right. So l let's step a little bit back because I want to talk. Sure. You've raised several things I want to talk about. But okay. tell me a little bit about 
the idea of it being a Wade annotated edition about the Wade Center and your connection uh, with that, how this book is is connected to the Wade Center. Sure, right. So the Wade Center or the Marion E. Wade Center um, is located on the campus of Wheaton College in Illinois, and um, they focus on materials for seven authors, the Four Inklings plus Dorothy L. Sayers, G.K. Chesterton, and George MacDonald. So in Chesterton and MacDonald were very important influences on the other writers. So they're often studied together. So it's a really nice, cohesive kind of group. There's a lot of, you know, letters between them and and sources of influence and that kind of thing. So um, their materials are there and it's an archives. Like for instance, there's like 34,000 pages of Sayers letters there. Um, so it's just this gold mine of, of things you can go through and look at. Um, as far as the man born to be king, they also have the early manuscripts of the plays. So that was very interesting to look at um, her handwritten manuscripts and then typescripts where there's still, you know, different changes happening. Um, and so those are some of the most interesting little side notes where I say, oh, she really struggled with what word was right here. And so then I can describe that um, for the reader. So they they get the kind of, as I say, backstage tour of what's happening. Yeah, you know, I another aside. We're, I've got too many asides here, but <laughs> um, you know, I, I do. Uh, one of the one of the negative things about our digital world is that that writers today just aren't going to have that same kind of paper trail, literal mm. paper trail. Oh, that's that somebody true. like uh, that Dorothy Sayers, like the the project that you did. I mean, could somebody do that in eighty years about a a work today? And and I fear not that it won't, it at least won't be the same. Right. I mean, it would be a lot of digital archives, but of course people often just, you know, pass away. We don't have access to their email anymore, you know, that kind of a thing. No one thinks to, to save those uh, things out or what's on their hard drive. It gets lost. Um, so you're right. I think it will be, it will be quite different, but for um, someone like Sayers who, was a prolific uh, letter writer as well as a prolific writer. Um, you know, there is a lot to discover um, and there's plenty more to discover. So I encourage people to keep doing research on Sayers because there's still a lot to find and tell us about. Yeah, it, it seems to me that there's, uh, that it, it is a, a fairly wide open field. I say mm -hmm. that as, I guess, a Sayers layman because I'm, I'm certainly not well well, as well versed in, in Sayers as I am somebody like Lewis, and I'm not claiming any expertise there either. But Lewis is somebody you know, we feel like we know a fair amount about. A lot has sure. been done on, on Lewis. Mm -hmm. I mean, Sayers is somebody who, you know, in my mind was a uh, a, a writer of, you know, of mystery fiction, you know, mm -hmm. Lord Peter Whimsey and that sort of thing. Yeah. And her, uh, I, I mean, I was relatively old when I discovered, oh, she's, she did some, she did some Christian apologetic writing too. That's interesting. Right. Um, yeah. but it's not something that I feel like has been embraced or emphasized in quite the same way. Maybe it's been a little bit under the radar and something like this may, may push that in, in a push things more to the light perhaps. Yeah, I, I certainly hope so. And I have tried throughout the book to, you know, make little links like this you know, for more on this, read her essay on, um, you know, why work or um, are women human or that those kinds of things to help people get a sense that there's a lot more to discover. I, you know, 
I wonder if maybe part of it is because she wrote in so many different genres. And so those genres get a little siloed, you know, so people are like, oh, I'm just into mystery. So they just read that. And there's actually a fair amount of scholarship um, on kind of text critical, excuse me, text critical analysis of um, her mysteries and how she deals with women or how she deals with um, people of other races in her novels and those kinds of things, or women's education, which is a big theme in Gaudy Night, one of her novels. Um, but there, there isn't that kind of scholarship on other areas. Um, although I, I could maybe say her work on Dante um, is maybe also really, um, you know, there's just more work done on it. Um, her, her actual translation of the Divine Comedy is probably not the favorite today. Um, most people say, well, I don't know, she was sort of trying to do this colloquial translation. Um, but all of her writings about how she was doing the translation and the, the lectures and the essays that um, were collected into three books um, about that work are real treasures of Dante scholarship even today. So it sort of depends what you're interested in. But yeah, her apologetic work, her plays are probably the least studied part of her canon. So you mentioned that your undergraduate was in theater. Mm -hmm. uh, I would imagine that, uh, that that background helped to inform your reading and your and your scholarship on these plays. I mean, you you would have a, a background knowledge that somebody who was coming in, you know, cold from just from a scholarly standpoint might not have. How did that help inform? Uh, your understanding or what you gained from, from what she was trying to do? Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, I, I think imagining them as plays uh, certainly helps. I mean, the, to read them as the scripts, as we have in the book, um, is, is wonderful. And one of the things I would say I was able to bring out in a few spots is what was happening with the actual production in 1941 and 42. Um, how they were preparing for it. There was a, a huge, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There was a huge protest about the plays just as they were about to go on the air. And so there's a lot that's happening kind of behind the scenes, but also some of the, the little things about, um, uh, well, I'll just say part of the conspiracy was about having Jesus as an actual character, which is something right. they, they had to get permission to do. Um, and even her writing to a friend the night that the, the, the actor who played Jesus, you know, was recording his parts for the first time saying, you know, he was, he was terribly frightened. Like ev everybody was sort of worried of how this performance was going to go. And to get some of those backstage glimpses, um, I think are interesting. Even though, of course, I say backstage. They were in a recording studio in London. Right. And uh, during, but during the war too. So that kind of stuff is very interesting about how how that all comes together do we still have any of those recordings any of those broadcasts we do yeah so the the very first broadcast can only be heard in a couple places um at the wade center of course at wheaton of course or at um the british library in london um or at the bbc archives so um but i have to say having having listened to it it is I mean, it's, it's fun to hear the actual recording, but um, because they were recording it live, there's a, a different kind of feel to it than you might with something 
with a normal kind of dramatized book on tape kind of <laughs> kind of right. thing. Um, so they, they actually speed up as they get closer to the end of the time because they're like, oh, or sometimes whole scenes get cut because they don't have time and uh, that kind of thing. So what Sayers was able to do in publishing the scripts was to make sure everything got in there, even the things that were cut. Um, and then, because uh, there was also, as I said, a conspiracy. So not a conspiracy. <laughs> What's the <laughs> word I'm looking for? <laughs> there was a protest. Um, no conspiracy. A protest um, about these plays. I think people worried, you know, ooh, this mystery writer is going to ruin the gospel by writing these plays on the life of Christ. And surely it'll be irreverent and that kind of thing. So there were people writing letters to the BBC. There was even a question that was asked in Parliament. Like, is the government oh, wow. going to do anything to stop these plays? Um, and they said, uh, no, we'll have to, re have to refer that to the BBC. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but because of this, there was um, a committee of people that were already advisors for the BBC. It's called the Central Religious Affairs Committee. And they were clergymen from different religious Christian traditions. Um, and so they advised the BBC on programming. So they actually, they created this system where they all read the script before it went on the air and they gave their comments to the head of religious broadcasting named James Welch. And then he relayed anything to Sayers um, and would kind of sift through it. So if he was like, well, no, I don't think you need to make that change. Um, so it could be anything from like, they didn't like the slang which was a big uh, concern at the very beginning. Um, but I think as they read the scripts, they actually really appreciated them and their own comments and criticisms just calmed way down into, these are great plays, <laughs> just keep them coming. So um, yeah, it's so there was this whole kind of behind the scenes thing happening. Um, and it's it's kind of fun to get in on that, but the, this version highlights that. Well, and you, you talked about, of course, kind of pushback that she gets from mm -hmm. um, the, 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 the initial pushback was from the producer's secretary that, oh, that she, right. <laughs> that she was, that she took it on herself to sort of critique and, and send Sayers suggested changes and so forth, which, which were not well received apparently. No, I think, uh, <laughs> Sayers didn't care for that at, at all. Um, but it, it's interesting. So in 1940, she was asked to write the plays at the beginning of 1940. By the end of 1940, she had prepared the first, uh, I, uh, at least the first script. And she sent that to the to the children's department of the BBC. All right. It was initially meant to be a children's, for, the, for sort of the children's part the, of the BBC. That's right. The children's hour on Sundays. So yeah, so she sent the script. Um, the actual producer was not there and his secretary um, received it and sent her own feedback. So I, you know, it's one of these things. I think part of it was personalities. Sayers felt very strongly in, in the kind of differentiation of whose job is it and to, to kind of keep those, those bounds. So she was offended by this woman's uh, response. Um, she had worked with lots of playwrights to, you know, <laughs> in her day. No one had obviously responded like Sayers did. But I think Sayers also just disagreed with the things that she was suggesting. Um, and so 
Sarah's felt like this woman had asked for a kind of dumbing down um, in mm. a few speeches that the three uh, magi were giving. So she disagreed with it. She felt like it was inappropriate for this woman to give her opinion. So she actually said, well, maybe we'll just cancel this whole thing. So for a while, at the end of 1940, um, the... Um, you know, those sort of plays were off. And then there was a, a revisiting, a rediscussion. You know, they kind of took it away from the children's department directly under the head of religious broadcasting, James Welch. And so then at the end of 1941, they were going to be on the air and there was a press conference. And that's when the press got a hold of, got a hold of this and um, were putting headlines like Life of Christ plays in U.S. slang. Um, that really, you know, no, got nothing the, could be worse than that. Well, no, and I, you know, especially for British people, they love to blame right. anything linguistic on Americans. So, um, even though these were kind of Cockney slang words, but they were calling them American. Um, so that's, you know, that's when, um, it all erupted and it looked like maybe the whole series was going to be off once again, but, um, James Welch held everything together and got the Central Religious Affairs Committee together um, in order to sort of be the gateway so that really so that the public would feel like, okay, well, as long as these clergymen are looking at these plays and checking them, you know, to make sure there's nothing that will offend us. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But ironically, I would say Sayers pretty quickly saw, well, if they're going to do this, like, what will they do when I get to the crucifixion? Are they forgetting that the crucifixion is actually really brutal and these people have to be jeering at Christ and um, spitting on him and making fun of him? And what are they going to do? Like it, you know, she says specifically to James Welch, like, I am, I won't, you know, make them actually swear at him, even though they probably did. Um, But, you know, I have to have free reign to show people what at least a suggestion of what it was really like. And she had, a, I mean, she had a very, which was her, uh, part of her reaction to the secretary's criticism, but she mm-hmm. had a very clear vision of what she wanted to do with this from the very beginning. Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, and her very first response to James Welch, when he asked if he, she would be interested in writing the plays, she said, I would if <laughs> um, she really wanted Christ to be a character, which um, was not a given. Um, and I'll just say that from the time of the Reformation up until just before World War One, it was actually absolutely illegal for Christ to be a character in a play. So it wasn't just, that's a weird thing to ask for. Um, and after that time, people needed permission from the Lord Chamberlain of the government to have a play that had Christ as a character. They would get around this by having kind of a voice from offstage or a, a bright light that sort of symbolized where Christ was on the stage. Um, and, you know, this is an attempt to be uh, respectful and pious, but it Sayers really felt like it was actually theologically incorrect. It was sort of giving people this, you know, docetic understanding that Christ wasn't actually human, that he just sort of maybe right. appeared to be human or whatever. So it was you disembodied the incarnation. Well, exactly, exactly. So, um, in this being radio, you know, there actually wasn't the same restriction. They may, you know, they might have gone ahead and done it, done it without getting permission. But they felt like this was an important enough project that they wanted permission. And 
it's actually really good that they did because if, if, um, if, you know, this whole thing had erupted in December, 1941 and they hadn't gotten permission, it might have actually shut the whole, the whole play cycle down. But, um, uh, but they did, they had asked permission of the Lord Chamberlain. He said, that's fine. But if you're going to do a stage version or a film or TV version, you'll have to come back and ask permission again. So, um, that's thankfully how that came together. But people, once they actually heard the plays, loved them because of the the freshness and the the reality that Christ um, was a real human being and truly God at the same time, truly God, truly man. Um, and Sayers was definitely trying to do that. So I guess, sorry, this is a little, that was a little tangent, but getting back to what she wanted to do at the beginning, um, she said she wanted Christ to be a character. She wanted people to speak everyday English um, instead of just using, you know, she could have adapted, for instance, the words from the King James version. She did use the King James, um, her um, narrator character, which she calls evangelist, um, often will just use directly um parts of the King James. Um, but for her other characters, you know, she says to James Welch in a letter, like Jesus has to at least be able to say good morning. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he doesn't say that anywhere in the gospels, but I have to be able to let him say that, um, or just have everyday things. But of course she ends up going, um, beyond that and, you know, doing a lot more adapting than maybe she even thought she might at the beginning. Um, but, but this sense of, Christ being a real person with a, you know, a real British accent, because she's very aware of her own audience. And then for the disciples, um, she gave them different uh, regional accents around the UK. So some of them had Northern accents. Some of them had, you know, more proper Oxford accents. Um, And then someone like Matthew, um, who's a tax collector, she gives Kind of a Cockney accent too, so he's always dropping his H's. Um, she specifically says that um, the Virgin Mary should have a slight um, hint of an Irish accent, um, <laughs> which is interesting. I'm not sure why, but the idea, of course, was just so her listeners would feel like these are regular people like us. They're they're not just pictures in a book, you know. They're not just yeah, she, stained in glass. In her introduction. In her introduction, she uses the, the the term sacred personages that people had this yeah had the idea that you know with with sort of formal new uh, king uh, formal King James English and so uh-huh. forth that they were not she says not men and women at all that they are sacred personages and so she was trying to break through that it seems like that's right yeah and she uses that phrase stained glass. Um, because the kind of the idea is if everyone is sort of positioned in place in a static way, like we're standing here waiting for Jesus to perform his miracle Um, as if they're robots or something. No, they were real people who had real feelings. That interaction might've been the only interaction they had with Jesus. Um, They, you know, only perhaps heard part of, of, of what he is saying, but they're reacting in within their own lives and had their own motives. So particularly when you get to people like Caiaphas or Pilate, um, you know, who have very important roles in the action, she does a great job of showing how they're seeing it from their own point of view. So we might not, you know, 
hopefully make the same decisions Caiaphas or Pilate did, but we can see how like for Caiaphas, what a tightrope he was walking um, in his interactions with the Roman government, but also, you know, because the, the high priest was really held responsible for what was happening with the people. So he's aware of these movements of, of zealots and Pharisees and, you know, these different groups that are all, um, you know, he's sort of like this balancing act. He's trying to kind of hold it together. So even if, you know, we blame him for not recognizing the true Messiah, um, we can at least be, um, you know, understand that he's trying, as Sayers says, puts in his mouth, he was trying to do the best he could for Israel. She has, she has another quote uh, in her, um, in her introduction where she talks about having to accept, I guess, accept them for where they were and what they knew at the time. She says, we're apt without realizing it to attribute to all the New Testament characters, the same kind of detailed theological awareness, which Mm. we have ourselves, you know, that we, we have this post Nicene understanding of a lot of these theological, uh, fundamental theological truths that, you know, that we literally say each week, right. that we recite each week, but they didn't know that. They didn't know how this worked and they, mm-hmm. they were in the middle of it. And I think a lot of times we, we, uh, or people can become offended by, re- by representations of gospel events and see them as perhaps irreverent when they're just people who are who are living their lives, and you know, then in walks the incarnate Son of God. Right? That's right. That's not that's not what they expected to happen that day, and mm-hmm. they didn't and they didn't fully grasp it. Um, I don't, are you are you a watcher of the uh, the Chosen uh, series? That's that's on. I am. Yeah. So I, th- this was something that sort of sort of reminded me of the chosen obviously mm-hmm. the chosen's not written by somebody like Dorothy Sayers but but it seems to me they're trying to do the same sort of thing mm-hmm. right that they're trying and and I see a lot of people upset about the chosen and I'm not telling people whether they should like it or not it's up to them <laughs> but I see criticisms directed at it sometimes that kind of remind me of some of the criticisms that that seem to be in, to have been directed at Sayers and her yeah. portrayal of the Gospels, which is that, that they're mm-hmm. that they're too real in, in, in essence, that they're that we're well, we're not holding them up on this pedestal like we ought to. But yeah. the whole point was that it was that they were real. That's what gives it real meaning. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I think that that's a really good comparison because I think, um, in a similar way, with the Chosen that has all these different episodes coming, all these different series. Uh, you know, these are 12 plays on the life of Christ. So I think it's a, it's a decent comparison in terms of the amount of content that's able to be um, included, but both of them, you're right. Like there are things that aren't there. There's different dialogue of what's happening behind the scenes and that kind of thing. And that was something that people were critical of um, in these plays as well. Like sometimes people would write and say like, you're putting words in God's mouth. Um, but she would say, I'm trying to dramatize it. I'm not trying to replace the gospel. I'm trying to help people imagine themselves there and to picture this as something that really happened and to give background. Frankly, Sayers does a great job of giving the background of what's happening, um, in the Roman empire 
and that kind of thing. Um, in the first play with King Herod, there's a long discussion about what's happening, and that's taken right from Josephus, not from the Bible, because we, you know, we we don't have that kind of background that's given. But we have, we do have that in historical books. So Sayers brings some of that material in to give the context um, for what's happening. And and she, in her first play, she has um, there's a a story in Josephus about um, Jewish. Um, you know, I don't know, eager, eager young men who steal the the eagle off of the temple because it had been put there by the Romans and, and it was offensive. Um, and so they, they, you know, went up and stole it, but they got in trouble and many, um, many people died because of that. So Sayers takes that story, puts it in in the last scene of her play one, and then sort of in the midst of that, then this letter from the three magi comes back saying they're not coming back to tell him where the Christ was. And so it's sort of like he's already angry. And so then it's sort of like this letter just erupts and he's like, all right, go kill all the boys in Bethlehem. Um, and so you get this sense of like, Herod is really like Caiaphas later, walking a tightrope. Like he's trying to hold things together, trying to maintain his personal power, but also for the sake of these people who, um, you know, he's trying to control, he thinks for their own good, you know, trying to keep the peace in a way that he seems best, uh, that seems best to him um, for, you know, for better or for worse, whether we think he's doing a good job or not, at least he has sort of the motivation of trying to do that. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, it's valuable. And this is an aside again uh, from the play, but I think it's valuable in our understanding of the gospels that, we we do understand the villains, and there are you know Herod is is one, Pilate mm -hmm. is one, Caiaphas is one, Judas is one. Mm -hmm. That we understand them not in a a, a cartoonish way, and I right. think a lot of times people want to portray them that way, but they they were people who made bad choices. They were people who were motivated by. Uh, temptations and sin the way same way any of us are mm -hmm. but they became enmeshed in them and so it's sort of a you know i i need to be careful that that's not me rather right. than you know as as you know jesus warns us about um you know about the 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 holy pharisee i, I thank you i'm not like these gospel right. villains yeah <laughs> you know that and, and i and i feel like that, that sayer uh is that she understands that and mm -hmm. that she's she's doing all of this and she talks about about that so she's doing this to to kind of jolt people into seeing the the gospel stories in a fresh uh in a fresh way without changing what's actually happening because we can let them become like you said like stained glass that they mm -hmm. that that we don't really recognize them as real events that happened to real people in a real time that was just like ours it mm -hmm. just happened to be that time and not this time right you're listening to the cultural debris podcast i want to shift gears a little bit to talk okay. about her her approach to writing and her, I guess, her artistic approach, because you, you discussed this in your introduction, and I, th I thought it was really fascinating. Mm. 
where uh, she was, you know, she had this clear idea of what she was going to write and, and that's what she intended to write. I mean, obviously she, she did incorporate some feedback, but she, she had this vision and, and it was, as far as she was concerned, kind of take it or leave it. This is what I'm doing because <laughs> that's what my, uh, that's what my artistic purpose is here. Uh, this is what I am feel compelled as an artist, in this mm-hmm. case, a writer, I feel compelled to produce and this, you know, if it's good or not, if it's useful or not, that's not my concern. My concern is to produce what I can produce and what I intend to produce. And, and you will just have to, you know, again, take it or leave it and <laughs> accommodate yourself. If you don't like it, that's not my problem essentially. Sure. Yeah. Um, yes, I think, I mean, I think certainly by this, this time in her career, she was very confident as a writer, um, and what, that she was able to, um, you know, have an idea and actually produce it well. Um, she has a book called the mind of the maker, which was published in 1941. So just, just as these plays were, um, uh, about to be produced, um, where she has this trinity of the artist and yes i i definitely want to talk about continue please because i want to talk about this oh good good so um she has i'm just gonna turn my page over because i have this little notes want to make sure i'm saying it correctly um so her trinity of the artist so there's kind of three parts of it there's the idea the energy and the power and um, she talks about this in The Mind of the Maker, but also in a couple other places at the end of her play, The Zeal of Thy House, um, and in a letter that she wrote in 1937 uh, when The Zeal of Thy House came out. So there's a couple different ways she expresses this, but I think the easiest ones are um, to say that the idea is like the book as you think it. So you think, okay, this is what I want to do. I can get, you can kind of see it. And as a, as an artist, I know that feeling of like, oh, that's it. This is what I want to do. I have this plan or it's, this is like for her, like the plot of a novel, it'll be perfect. All I have to do is write it. Um, This sort of, this idea exists and she, she likens it to the Holy Trinity. So it's like God exists outside of time. But in order for that idea to be realized, you need energy, which is the word she uses for the book as you write it. So it's sort of like, okay, that's the day-to-day actually setting time aside to work on the book or to write the song or the poem. Um, And she likens that to God the Son, that God who existed outside of time came into time and showed us over the course of time, over the course of the life of Christ, who God is and embodied godness for us. Um, And then her final stage is the power. And that's the book, she says, as you and they read it. So um, that's, you know, the book is published. People can can read it and become the audience. You yourself can also read the book. So there's sort of this this kind of um, ongoing life of the work of art. Um, And so it's this wonderful example. I, I I think it's it breaks down slightly, of course, if there's an artist who doesn't have the full skills to be actually, <laughs> you know, bring to life the thing that they're envisioning, or if the, it, you know, original vision is is not very uh, 
very good from the beginning, but, but as a, a way of thinking about the artistic process, I think it's, it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really struck me. I, I had never, at least I don't recall ever having seen it broken down in quite that way before, but she's thinking about her art in a, in a Trinitarian kind of way that she's, mm-hmm. um, God essentially kind of as an artist, if you will, yeah. um, who's creating as she and she as a creator uh, is is a kind of emulating that. And of course, anytime we we do that, we're going to do it imperfectly. Right. Nonetheless, that's the ideal of what we're of what we're striving for. And so I, I found it a, a, an intriguing way of conceptualizing the artistic enterprise. And she clearly had given a lot of thought to this. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, it's, it's one of those parts of her, of her writings that I think, uh, we need a lot more work done on it because how that can relate to all kinds of things, I think is very exciting. Um, in my introduction, I, I liken it to, you know, I, I kind of apply it, shall we say to specifically to the man born to be King. So as we said, she had this very specific idea in mind and then um, what I'm able to bring out in this edition is the the kind of the energy, the sort of sunness, um, God, the sunness of the project, of the in time daily uh, work. You know, what sources was she using? What Bible translations? Who was she talking to? You know, corresponding with as far as James Welch, but also the the people that heard the plays and responded. Um, you know, after it, whether that's the Central Religious Affairs Committee um, clergymen, but but later too, some of those interesting bits. Um, that's part of, I guess, maybe the power. You should say the um, the sort of after effect. But you know, I'm really focused on what was happening in the actual working process and seeing Sayers as an artist who's using all of her available tools um, to create this work of art, which is a set of 12 Life of Christ plays. Um, We sometimes, you know, still have this kind of romantic vision of like the artist going out into the woods, you know, with just their genius in order to create something. Um, But here she is, you know, using all these things that are available to her to create these plays. She had a quote, uh, I, you have this quote from her in, in your introduction where she's talking about, uh, you know, she, she's creating this work. This is what I'm putting out there. And then she mm-hmm. says, let God do what he likes with this stuff. So, right. you know, that, that I, I don't, it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, a very, um, I guess uh, has it, it shows great faith in God. I'm not, I'm not trying to impose something that I know is going to to be effective in the way maybe that we people want it to be effective. But if God wants it to be, it will be. God God can can take this and work with it. I, I mean, it's it's really. I mean, it, you know, it's a it's a funny statement, but at the same time, it it really is a statement of of great uh, faith and maturity. I think that mm. you know that I'm handing this over. I'm I'm acting. Uh, as an artist with what God has given me, I'm producing this thing um, to the best of my ability. And then if God wants to do something with it, obviously he can. If if not, well, right. 
I've done what I can do. It mm-hmm. seemed it, it seemed to me to have a a, a streak of Flannery O'Connor in it, um, <laughs> and maybe that's anachronistic, uh, but uh, but there there seemed to be a similar kind of idea, I guess, similar kind of attitude, maybe about yeah. uh, about it, just a a spiritual maturity, because both of them are writing with um i think a a a real appreciation for the integrity of of what they are producing yeah you haven't for, mentioned about, C. lewis but that's who you mean when you say they're both writing correct uh, part you have uh, no 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 uh, F- i'm sorry flannery o'connor oh, flannery o'connor because yeah. that letter where she says let god do what he likes with the stuff is written to C.S. Lewis, which we can talk okay. about, but I see what you mean. Yes. Yeah. That both of them, I, I wanted, I do want to talk about Lewis. Hold on <laughs> to that thought. <laughs> um, uh, but I, that struck me as a sort of a Flannery-esque kind of attitude, hmm. but, but both of them are, are, because both of them are writing in a way that appreciates the integrity of the, of the art itself. I mean, for example, I guess I'm coming at this from kind of the, the the point of view is that we see a lot of bad Christian art, Mm -hmm. right. And that's whether it's writing, whether it's right, whether it's, whether it's visual art, a musical, whatever it is, there's a lot of this kind of, you know, sappy, bad Christian art. We all, we all know that there is. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that, Obviously, the great Christian artists like Sayers or somebody like Flannery O'Connor or C.S. Lewis, they are they are living out their lives as Christian artists who are producing art and then letting God do with it what he wants. Right. I mean, that's not to say that that they are they are they are putting uh, their their Christian understanding into the art, but not in a way that detracts from the integrity of the art itself. And I feel like that that's what you have to do to get actually good and perhaps even great art, Hmm. um, rather than being self-consciously a Christian artist, if that if that makes sense. And I feel like O'Connor, somebody who rejected that, I, you know, I'm not a Christian artist. I'm a writer who is also Catholic and Mm -hmm. those ideas come out. The same thing is true for somebody like Lewis. And I think uh, obviously Sayer here is working on an overtly didactic piece. Nonetheless, she's being criticized, I think, because she's not treating it like, uh, you know, a sentimental piece that, that may be, uh, would have been would have received an easier time, but not really have been the sort of thing that you would have wanted to spend your your time doing a dissertation on and, right. and, and doing a weighed doing a weighed annotated edition. She created a piece of art that here, you know, what eighty years later, yeah. we're talking about mm-hmm. rather than something that just simply faded away, like you know, uh, a Sunday school book from the fifties or something that's got right. tossed. Yeah. Well, I, there's a couple layers there because. Yeah. Sorry about that rant. No, bring it on. Um, Because James Welch, the head of religious broadcasting, I mean, it was his idea. He commissioned the plays and he specifically wanted them to be evangelistic. 
So this is what I, you know, in that part of my introduction, I'm kind of trying to tease out that it was sort of his job to commission plays. He had a purpose. He specifically says, I want these to help the heathen of this country. You know, people who have forgotten, they don't, they don't know their Bible. They don't know who Jesus is, but they listen to the radio. And if we do something on the radio, they could maybe meet Jesus. And so then he commissions Sayers to write the plays, but she makes this differentiation. Like, that's fine. He has, you know, um, commissioned these plays for his purpose, but my purpose as an author is to write the best plays that I can. Right. And the most theologically meaty plays. And so she's using all her available tools to um, really come at the work of the plays like a scholar in a way, you know, I mean, they're popular radio plays, um, I mean, for a popular audience, but she is, you know, using the tools. She's thinking very deeply about them, very consciously working at it. And she's saying like, I can't, you know, from scene to scene, I can't be thinking about like, Ooh, will this help people, you know, really have an encounter with Christ? She's, you know, and I say this thing, it will change somebody's mind. Nope. That's not my job as a as an author, as a playwright. My job is to write the best plays, and it's got to hang together well in terms of theology, but also drama. It's got to work as good drama, or else it'll be really boring to listen to. <laughs> right, and and if God wants to do something with the stuff, then He will. Right. right. So I'm going to produce this, and then that's all I can do. And we we can't we can't control the outcome of it. And that's, um, and I, and I feel like in order to produce good art that you have to go into it with that understanding Mm -hmm. that I guess essentially if you, if you are trying to please the audience sort of in a, in a conscious kind of way, not that you're trying to offend them necessarily, but I'm just saying if that's your, if you always have that at the, at the end of, of your, um, of your project, then it's probably not going to be great. It might please the audience, at least for a short period of time, but it's, it's probably not going to be something that, that endures or lasts, or if it mm-hmm. does, then that's probably, um, that's, that's something that's rarer than, <laughs> than actually producing a great art itself. But, that's well, let's right. talk a little bit about, about C.S. Lewis, um, because sure. can, L- Lewis, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, because can I start by just saying something right, having to do with Lewis, having to do with that letter? Because as yes, I mentioned, please. she was writing to Lewis um, when she said that, you know, it's my job to write the best place possible and let God do what he likes with the stuff, because Lewis had written to her asking her if she would write uh, one, a book in this the- series for Thorn Publishers. Um, so it was kind of a thorn. It was called a th- you know, thorn book is what they kept calling it in the letters. But, um, you know, of kind of theology for young people. And he thought she would be great, but she was not interested at all. And so he was kind of trying to his his things were like, I know it's not the most exciting project, but, you know, it really needs to be done. Someone has to write it and we need someone good to write it. So can't you write one of these books? And she writes back and's like, no, I'm not going to be the right person to write it because it doesn't interest me. It's not what I feel called to write and it won't be good. It won't, it won't right. really suit the purpose if I'm not the right person to write it. And so she's saying what I should be doing is, you know, trying to do you know, do my writing that I feel called to write the best way that I can and let God do what he likes with the stuff. So 
um, I kind of feel like maybe if, you know, if she had been a young, starving artist, <laughs> she might have had a different answer. Um, sure. That is the answer of someone who, you know, has his full control of their craft and, you know, has the uh, maybe, you know, financial situation to be able to pick and choose her projects. Um, but I think that is good because that's what you would write if money didn't matter, you know, is what you should be actually writing. Right. I mean, she has, she was in a position where she had the ability to turn that down, but also the, she had the wisdom and maturity. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, when, when she was approached by the BBC, obviously it was a project that excited her right? because it's, because it's, I mean, it's a, it's a, a lot of 12 plays. That's a mm -hmm. lot. Um, it's a big, it's a big project. And it's one that, I mean, it's, you know, it's one thing to write a book, have it published and, at, you know, you think, well, if it's not any good, at least not many people will see it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but if you, if you're broadcast on BBC radio, you know, pre-TV uh -huh. days, right. everybody's going to hear it. I mean, because, right. and, and so if, if it falls flat, it falls flat in a, in kind of a massive way, I guess mm -hmm. you can't, you can't avoid it. So, you know, there's, um, there's a big risk in, in taking that. And so, um, right. you know, and of course, Lewis, you know, Lewis was doing radio broadcasts for the BBC around the same time. And he was, uh, that's right. It was, it's interesting. It's interesting. The, the, the talent that the BBC was pulling in. Yes. What, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But do you know <laughs> that Lewis was only on the BBC? Well, at least in, in some ways because of Sayers. Because uh, Sayers did um, a, a series of talks on the middle paragraph of the Nicene Creed. So they did a whole series on the Nicene Creed um, with a clergyman doing the first, you know, God the Father stanza, another clergyman doing the Holy Spirit paragraph. But she was asked to do the long central paragraph on Christ. And so it was a series of, I think, six talks um, called Christ in the Creeds. and but she was, she was the first lay person to ask to be, to, to speak on a religious subject, but also the first woman to do so. And that was so successful. Those were so great that C.S. Lewis and others, other lay people were asked to give similar talks. Um, and so it's really thanks to Sayers, the success of her Christ in the Creed series, that C.S. Lewis gave his talks, which became Mere Christianity. Yeah, very a very nice connection, yeah. and so they they were. I mean, obviously they were they were friends. They were riding mm -hmm. back and forth, and Lewis, of course, had uh, has the the endorsement of the book that he he read the book every year during Holy Week. That yes, was, uh, the the series of plays. So that's mm -hmm. a that's a pretty strong that's a pretty strong endorsement coming from a good source. I think that's right. Yeah, so they got to know each other in 1943, just when. Um, the printed edition was coming out. So he says that he, um, you know, he had missed the broadcast. He hadn't listened to them in 1941, 42. <laughs> um, but she sent him a copy in 1943, just as they were becoming friends. And he read it and loved it. So there's a lovely letter where he's describing how he even shed hot tears in places. Um, and nothing had moved him so much since Muriac's uh, Vie de Jesus, which is another adaptation of the life of Christ. 
Um, and he says, I expect to read it times without number. And then every few years, again, there's another letter from him that says, I am rereading The Man Born to be King, as I always do in Holy Week. Or I'm once again rereading The Man Born to be King. It stands <laughs> up to this kind of test very well. And then, you know, when he when she died in 1957, he wrote a panegyric um, in her honor. And he specifically says in there, I read them every year during Holy Week. So um, it's a wonderful tradition. I hope maybe this year some some readers might be interested in taking that on as their their Lent book or or their Holy Week reading. Well, it uh, it is coming out well timed, and, mm-hmm. and perhaps uh, perhaps this this podcast episode might nudge them in that direction a little bit. I hope yeah. so. Uh, so you, uh, in addition to being a uh, a scholar uh, of Dorothy Sayers. You're also mm-hmm. a musician and an artist. Tell me a little bit about uh, about your other artistic endeavors. Sure. Um, so I I have been at various times in my life a, a folk musician. Um, I do have three albums of music, but the last of which is the one that's still available on iTunes and on my website and stuff. Um, and that actually has a great connection to The Man Born to be King. So um, it's a series of songs. Each song is a different woman in the Gospels. So, And I was writing those songs as I was writing my PhD dissertation. So there's some spots of, of clear connection. Uh, some of them, um, you know, that I, I, I specifically wanted to make a different choice than Sayers, but I was still very much thinking about it. Like I have a song for Mary of Bethany and a different song for Mary Magdalene, whereas Sayers does what we call a composite Mary, where Mary Magdalene, Mary Bethany, and the sinful woman from Luke 7 are kind of all brought together in one understanding of Mary, which is historical. Not everyone historically thought that, but someone like Augustine or Gregory the Great said, well, they probably were the same person. So Sayers kind of follows in that tradition. She also says like, well, I, 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 I will, I'll throw in my vote for you, oh, for your choice. on that. Oh, okay. <laughs> of separating them out. Well, that see, that's what seems normal to us now. It wasn't until the 1960s that the Catholic church even gave Mary of Bethany a, a different day. So her, her day was added to Martha and Lazarus. Um, her name was added to the Feast of Mary, uh, Martha and Lazarus, whereas Mary Magdalene has a different feast day. So it uh, it really was a traditional understanding. So there's sort of no fault, I think, um, to Sayers um, for making that choice. It was a very common choice at the time. Um, and but there even then she there is a, a letter where she says I know that some scholars are saying it, they're different people but I can't have this multiplication of Marys like there's just <laughs> too many <laughs> which is why I I named my album and all the Marys um, because there are a lot of Marys in the New Testament um, so yeah so something like that I gave them different songs um, but then also one of the the other clear connections is that I. I just found so profound, um, you know, the, the, the story of, of, uh, John and James asking Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit on your left and right? And, um, and Jesus says, you know, you don't know what you're asking for. And the, you know, can you drink the, the cup that I'm going to drink? So Sayers has that scene and she has it, um, there and then at the foot of the cross, she has 
John, the beloved disciple, say, we did not know what we were asking because here your left and right places are, you know, given to thieves. And, um, and like that was actually, that it just, it's a very, you know, Christological statement, like this is actually the moment of Christ coming into his kingdom. Like his kingdom is being inaugurated because he is dying for the sins of the world. And is sort of the, you know, undertone that Sarah's is not saying, but I love that. And there's another retelling of the, um, of that story in a different gospel of James and John. Instead, it's their mother. I think it's the one in Matthew where their mother, Salome, asks, um, you know, can my sons sit on your left and right? So I thought since I wanted to write a, a song about Salome, um, that uh, I put those words borrowed from Sayers in her mouth, saying at the foot of the cross um, mm. that, um, you know, that those places, you know, we didn't, I didn't know what I was asking for. I see these places have been given to two thieves. Is this what your kingdom means? Um, so that's very connected to my study of Sayers as well. So, um, well, those are available on your YouTube channel. That's right. Yep. Uh, which people can check show notes and I will have a link to that. Tell people right. where they can find information about you online, including your YouTube channel. Sure. So my YouTube channel is just my first and last name, Catherine, K-A-T-H-R-Y-N. Um, so YouTube is just Catherine Ware. And then my my website is CatherineWare.com. So K-A-T-H-R-Y-N-W-E-H-R.com. And so I have stuff on my website about the man born to be king. Um, so there's a link to that book on the IVP website. Um, but I also have information about my music there and um, as well as being able to play it through YouTube. And there are some songs that actually I have um, created little videos for. Um, you can also find it on, on iTunes or Spotify or Amazon Music, any, any place you'd normally get music. Um, you can find the music through that. Yeah. So you you have you have a multimedia uh, pack for uh, for Lent and Easter. <laughs> um, people That's right. people can people can read the book. They can listen to your uh, to your songs as a soundtrack, and yes. uh, so we'll, we'll recommend that to people. And I will provide links to those things um, in show notes. Are you uh, are you on social media uh, available available on social media, or have you wisely chosen to avoid that? I, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn, but that's, that's it. Yeah, uh, okay. I gave up uh, Facebook a while ago um, and uh, feel, feel, feel happier for it. Um, <laughs> I can understand. But, yeah. But I will say, you know, there's one other thing. Um, my day job, I work at the University of St. Thomas and I'm the managing editor of the Logos Journal is of logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture. So um, that's another type of media that I'm that I'm working oh, with, and um, I I love that job because it there's just articles of all it's it's very interdisciplinary. So it's like faith and philosophy, faith and science, faith and the arts, and so I just feel like I'm at the kind of nexus of all these different conversations that are happening and. Um, I love that work. And uh, of course, of course, recommend Logos to uh, your listeners as well. Yeah. All right. And I, I suppose there is a website for that, which I will mm -hmm. track down and also and also link. Well, I am I'm a big proponent of um, 
of cross-disciplinary conversations hmm. because I think uh, we we can become siloed uh, and into different areas, and there are things we don't see or don't recognize that uh, that would be beneficial to our understanding if we were informed by other expressions, other areas of knowledge, other artistic uh, endeavors, that sort of thing. So hmm. I, th- I think that is that is highly valuable. And, and I hope that the Cultural Debris podcast itself uh, kind of captures that inter- interdisciplinary uh, uh, seeking out of, of wisdom and information. Yes, that's great. Keep those conversations going. Catherine Ware, thank you very much for being on Cultural Debris. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Alan.